Hello and welcome to Macrobyte, the economic and politics podcast series from Aberdeen. My name is Luke Bartholomew and today we're going to be talking about the outlook for US politics in 2023. Now the midterm elections at the back end of last year left Washington with divided government with the Republicans taking the House of Representatives which means that the power of the Biden White House has diminished significantly, but also the narrowness of the Republican victory has also left Republican leadership with less power than it might otherwise have had, with leadership vulnerable to certain factions within the Republican Party, all of which has important implications for the outlook for policy this year. And on top of that, as the year progresses, it's likely we're going to see increased jostling amongst potential candidates for the presidential election next year. So there is a lot to talk about in terms of the US political outlook. And therefore, I'm delighted to say I am joined today by Lizzie Galbraith, political economist at Aberdeen. So Lizzie, thanks very much for joining us. Probably a good place to start is with a review of those midterm elections, given um, how important those are in shaping the political outlook for this year. So perhaps you can give us a sense of who you thought were the big winners and losers of those elections. Yeah, so in in terms of the results, um, we ended up um, with actually the Democrats doing surprisingly well, given that um, traditionally in the US, the party of the president tends to do quite badly in in the midterms. So based on um, historical expectations, um, they actually ended up doing pretty well and outperforming historical norms. Um, The Democrats only lost nine House seats, which did result in them losing the House, but it was significantly less than the historical average since World War II of a loss of 26 seats for the the party of of the president. The Democrats actually ended up picking up a Senate um, seat as well, um, retaining control of of the Senate, um, although they have since technically lost a seat as one of the as one of the Democrat senators has has decided to become independent, although she still caucuses with the Democrats. So in terms of um, what um, the outcome is, the Democrats retained control of the Senate but crucially have lost the House with quite a narrow margin. That does mean that one of the big winners um, coming out of of the elections is actually Biden himself. Um, Expectations going into the elections were pretty low. He wasn't polling amazingly well, and there were lots of speculation about whether or not he was going to be able to run for a second term. What this, um, what the result means is that um, he's had seen a bit of a poll bump, um, although he's had a bit of a, a rocky start to, to 2023. But broadly, what we're going to see is that Biden's going to be able to decide whether or not he runs for re-election on his own terms without pressure from kind of outside political forces making that decision for him. We also saw Republican Florida Governor Ron DeSantis um, have a very good election cycle as well. Um, he massively improved his own own um, re-election on his uh, first term. And he is in poll position to challenge Donald Trump 
for, um, for the Republican nomination for presidency in 2024, um, which does bring us on to Trump, who, um, who has to be um, the person that um, was one of the bigger losers from the midterm elections. Most of his endorsed candidates didn't do particularly well. Um, and there was definitely an issue with candidate quality um, that really dragged on the Republican um, fortunes in this election that has been associated with some of the decisions that he's made and some of the conspiracy theories that he's that he's pushed, um, particularly with regards to the outcome of the election in 2021. Thanks, Lucy. So in that period after the midterms and before the new Congress that just been elected was signed in, we had this so-called lame duck session where the previous Congress people were that are still sitting and awaiting the new Congress to come in early this year. So was there anything important legislation that has passed in that time or were there any sort of important lessons for us to draw during that period? Yeah, so the big the big thing that happened um, in the lame duck was the passage of um, actually quite a big um, spending bill for 2023. So it's not normal that you'd, you'd get a budget passed in the lame duck, but it's sort of been punted down the roads in the autumn, which meant that it's always, it was a bit of a must pass for, for Congress um, in the lame duck session. What we saw from that is that um, the Republican leadership in the House and the Senate actually differ quite strongly on strategy. And we are seeing some quite significant policy gaps opening up as well. So we saw the Republican leader in the Senate, Mitch McConnell, actually prioritise um, stability um, a lot more and sort of demonstrating that Republicans can be sort of competent governors when when they do actually have um, the power to, to change things. So the Senate Republicans were much more focused on actually passing legislation in the lame ducks, you know, working on a bipartisan basis with the Senate Democrats. Whereas um, in the House, what you saw is um, the the then presumptive speaker, Kevin McCarthy, was actually um, pressuring for the decision to actually be kicked into January when the Republicans would have assumed a majority in the House and they'd have been able to exact more spending concessions in theory from the Democrats. So um, the focus on, on House strategy was much more about sort of confrontation with with the Democrats rather than bipartisan working arrangements. Um, and what we saw is that McConnell in part because he was concerned about the volatility of the Republican-controlled House when it was sworn in, actually decided to go with the more kind of stable option, which was the passage of a bipartisan bill in the lame duck rather than withhold votes um, and kick it into, into January. So what we got was a $1.6 trillion um, government funding bill for 2023 with a very big increase in both defence and non-defence spending. So when we when we get on later to talk about Republican strategies for, for 2023, there are some big um, numbers that, that we see in the, in the government funding package that don't necessarily align well with what some Republicans want to see going forwards. So Kevin McCarthy, who you described during that lame duck as the presumptive speaker, has indeed become um, speaker. But the process of him becoming so involved an extremely public struggle with his party and multiple rounds of voting and opposition. So why did he face that degree of opposition? And is there sort of an important lesson from that? And then what ended that opposition and what allowed him to eventually become Speaker? Yeah, so we we saw um, a fairly extraordinary election of the Speaker in that a lot of the drama around sort of wrangling of votes 
actually played out um, in, literally in front of the cameras rather than, um, rather than behind closed doors. And um, we saw kind of multiple speakers' votes and McCarthy was eventually elected on, on the 15th ballot, which is not entirely unprecedented, but fairly unprecedented for modern, um, for modern uh, speakers' votes, at least. What happened was you essentially had a group of uh, 20 Republicans that were very strongly opposed to essentially the concept of Kevin McCarthy rather than um, and his sort of political allegiances. It's what you tend to get is this group mostly being described as sort of fairly anti-establishment, viewing McCarthy as an establishment figure who has sort of been around Washington and Washington sort of lobbyist fundraisers for a quite a long time. And what they wanted was someone who was unattached to, to what they saw as sort of vested interests in, in Washington. The problem was that although all of these, these people had quite strong criticism of McCarthy and what they felt he represented, they couldn't agree on alternative candidates, even amongst themselves, and their, their various sort of choices for candidate never really gained any traction with the wider Republican Party. So it was, it was although it was a fairly successful blocking movement, it didn't really um, have any, any legs to actually change um, the outcome of, of the speaker's vote. So we saw McCarthy successfully um, sort of peel them off towards the end of that voting process with various concessions. But essentially what that what that means going forward is that we're going to see roughly 10% of Harris Republicans continue to employ these blocking tactics to increase their their influence over the future political direction of, of the House. And that's going to be really important going forwards. Well, let's be a little bit more specific then in terms of those areas where those tactics will be of importance. And I guess perhaps the most pressing right now is the question of the debt ceiling and how Congress will go about raising that and what um, the opposition in the Republican Party means around that. But then also any other issues where you think this sort of Republican tactics um, might have important implications for specific policy areas as well. Yeah, so the um, the Treasury is going to start deploying emergency measures um, on the 19th of, of January to um, to kind of to make sure that Congress can continue to, well, the government can continue to, to pay um, its debt obligations. At the moment, the Treasury Secretary, Janet Yellen, um, is estimating that um, the X date, um, the point at which um, those emergency measures will run out, um, will be no later than early June. Um, and that means that we're going to, um, we're going to have to, um, Congress is going to have to find a solution to raising the debt ceiling. Um, it, before that X date um, happens. This has um, traditionally been an area where a political makeup um, like it is now, so a Democrats-led um, president with a small House Republican majority, this tends to be the, the sort of the recipe that you, where you get sort of brinkmanship around, around, the, um, around the debt ceiling as, as Republicans look to sort of leverage the debt ceiling to gain um, concessions on spending. That's very likely what we're going to see this time as well, and that we're going to see those brinkmanship tactics that this group of House Republicans um, employed in the Speaker's election sort of come back into, in, into the fore around the debt ceiling negotiations as well. So it's quite likely that we'll see those negotiations go down to the wire and that in the interim, we're going to see quite a lot of noise and quite a lot of 
on both sides um, policy um, proposals that just won't um, won't be able to to gain bipartisan support. So at the moment, the the Democrats are proposing um, what they call a, a clean increase to the debt ceiling. So essentially, a no strings attached increase to the debt ceiling, while um, Republicans um, have actually yet to coalesce around um, a, a clear set of demands, but varying demands have included things like capping the government budget at 2022 levels, ensuring that the government, um, is, government debt is falling um, within the decade, things like that. So um, there's, some, there's some very big, big spending demands um, going on already. Um, we'll see that narrow towards the X date, but it's it's still likely to to go to the wire as you see those those more right leaning Republicans sort of hold out on on bipartisan consensus to try and and get some um, additional funding cuts um, from from the Democrats in in the final days of of the debt ceiling negotiations. So one of the things you hear some people talking about as a way in which the debt ceiling issue can be avoided and I'm not so sure how seriously they're talking but this sort of rather funky idea of treasury minting a one trillion dollar coin and then depositing that at the fed and then getting financing against that I mean just for the record how seriously should we take those kind of proposals um I think I think they can be pretty um pretty conclusively dismissed at this stage. I mean, the White House has said that it's not something that it's considering. Um, and certainly given the the make the Democrats in the Senate, those those actually kind of hold the power to, to pass the vote. So those those two um, names you hear quite often, Joe Manchin um, being one of them. And you they they only tend to pass legislation when it has bipartisan support. Um, so the idea of the government essentially circumventing a bipartisan process with with um, a proposal like that would be deeply unpopular and would probably have quite significant political consequences. So I think it's it would never be anything other than an absolute sort of last ditch effort to, to avoid something kind of truly calamitous. Um, but the White House has said that that, that is off the table and it's, it's going to be a debt ceiling raised by traditional means only while, while that option is still available to them. Okay, so I think that pretty conclusively puts that issue to bed, at least for now. So looking beyond fiscal policy, what else can we expect House Republicans to focus on over the next two years with this very narrow majority that they have? Yeah, so we are going to see the House pass quite a lot of essentially symbolic legislation that will demonstrate what their political priorities are, but won't pass in the Senate and therefore in practical terms won't mean anything. So early bills that we've seen passed by the House focused on some fairly narrow um, anti-abortion measures and restricting the funding of the IRS. Again, because these things won't um, gain support in the Senate, they're essentially um, going nowhere. But this sort of symbolic passage of fairly sort of standard conservative legislation at this point will, will continue as, as they try and set out a platform for the 2024 elections. We're also going to see them prioritise lots of committee investigations. So it will surprise no one who kind of spends time uh, listening to Republicans that investigations into Hunter Biden are like extremely likely to happen. Investigations into Joe Biden himself are also quite likely um, as well. And again, it's it's a way of Republicans sort of finding a platform that sets out their political agenda ahead of the next electoral cycle. 
one thing that we will see um, as well is that Republicans are quite likely to launch investigations into the use of ESG standards by investors as well. So the, the Republican leader of the House Financial Services Committee has confirmed that he's going to be focusing on oversight of the new SEC climate disclosure rule, part of his tenure over the next two years. So um, climate disclosure and ESG and investing is also something that we can expect um, House Republicans to, to focus on going forward as well. Although, as I said, it's, at this point, it's, it's symbolic due to the Democrat-controlled Senate. Now, this being American politics having just got through the midterms already pretty quickly, attention is starting to turn, as you say there, to the next electoral cycle, and indeed the big one of the presidential election race in 2024. So how can we expect that to start to shape up through the year, and what are the big things to watch in that respect? Yeah, so so far the only declared candidate on either side is um, actually Donald Trump. He's declared very early, um, largely sort of boxed in um, by his sort of very heavy hinting towards the the run up to the midterms. But we don't actually know when the Iowa caucus will be yet. It's the first caucus for um, for the Republicans. That tends to dictate the timing that um, that candidates normally use for for announcing their their runs. It's usually um, between January and February. So we're expecting it to be sort of January, February 2024. And if we use sort of traditional expectations around candidate announcements, we would expect more Republicans to start announcing um, over the summer months to give themselves a good sort of six months of lead in time um, until that first caucus. So Ron DeSantis, who so far dismissed um, any questions about his presidential aspirations, but is a sort of obvious front runner, he is continuing to fundraise. Um, He is publishing an autobiography, fairly short order. And he's likely to announce after the end of the current Florida legislative session, which would be in early May. So we would expect him to announce sort of over the summer. There are plenty of others um, in the Republican Party that are also considering a run. So you have, you know, candidates like former uh, Vice President Mike Pence, Florida uh, former Maryland governor uh, Larry Hogan um, is also quite openly considering a bid. And you do also have... um, other former Trump appointees like Mike Pompeo and Nikki Haley are also exploring um, bids, as well as some sitting governors like Texas Governor Greg Abbott as well. So it's all it's all shaping up to be quite a crowded field on the Republican side. Um, and that does mean that we're going to we're likely go, um, to see kind of very, very noisy early stages, more like the 2016 Republican primaries, where you, we had an incredibly crowded field early on that and actually took quite a long time to narrow because so many people were sort of convinced that, that they, could, they, could, they could win in the end. And because of that, it's important that we don't write Trump off, despite um, the difficult midterm cycle and his sort of legal issues. He is still polling quite well within um, the Republican Party. And lots of the outcome of the Republican primary is likely to depend on his sort of general engagement with the primary process this time around, as well as just how many of these uh, prospective candidates actually do decide to run. It's also likely that on the Democrat side, we'll see Biden announce in early 2024, if either way, um, if, if he decides he is going to run, then we'd, um, we'd expect that to essentially be the end of um, any speculation around the Democrat primary. It's very unlikely that um, anyone would challenge him. 
if he does decide um, that um, one term is enough, then we would again expect quite a crowd of Democrats feels, particularly with um, a lot of the, the current sitting governors um, deciding to, to put their hats in the ring as well. Super. Thanks, Lizzie. So I think that is all we have time for this week. So please do allow me to ask you once again to rate, review and subscribe to us on your podcast platform of choice. And all that remains for me to do is first thank Lizzie for her excellent contribution today and thank you all for listening. So thanks very much and speak again soon. This podcast is provided for general information only and assumes a certain level of knowledge of financial markets. It is provided for informational purposes only and should not be considered as an offer, investment recommendation or solicitation to deal in any of the investments or products mentioned herein and does not constitute investment research. The views in this podcast are those of the contributors at the time of publication and do not necessarily reflect those of Aberdeen. The companies discussed in this podcast have been selected for illustrative purposes only or to demonstrate our investment management style and not as an investment recommendation or indication of their future performance. The value of investments and the income from them can go down as well as up and investors may get back less than the amount invested. Past performance is not a guide to future returns, return projections or estimates and provide no guarantee of future results.